the penultimate episode of season one of Rigged, Luke Ryan returns to discuss the Amherst lab operations. Chris, Luke, Jamie, and Ilias also discuss the media's reaction to the Amherst lab and how far the state and media went to lie to the public about the lab. Enjoy this episode, and as always, like, subscribe, and give us a review. All right, welcome back um, to our final episode of season one of the Rig Podcast. Um, with me today is our Chris Post and Ilias Rona, as always, and then our special guest to close out the season is uh, Luke Ryan, making his return to the podcast. Welcome, Luke. Thank you for coming. Good to be here. Good. Excellent. So we wanted to today go over the Amherst lab operations. We've been going over the uh, Hinton lab operations for the past few episodes. And now for the last episode, we wanted to switch back to Amherst. So I wanted to start off the episode by reading an article um, from from September 24th, 2012, shortly after Annie Dukin uh, was arrested. And this is from the uh, Gazette Net. Is that it? Gazette Net. And it says Am- Amherst Crime Lab passes muster. No ties to Jamaica Plains scandal found. And so just guys, just just on that headline. Now, I don't want to trash anyone that's involved in this article. I Like it, it, this was clearly what I would say. And Luke had said it prior to we, we started recording, probably a rush to judgment. Would you agree with that statement, guys? Well, they seem to just be parroting whatever the Mass State Police told them, right, with no independent investigation about whether or not the claims they're making are accurate. Right. right. It, it reminds me of when my kids say they can't find something, and then I ask them, did you look? And they say no. <laughs> Only this was a drug lab affecting the lives of thousands of people. I mean, I'll just say that on September 24th, 2012, Nobody knew what was going on in Hinton, let alone being able to rule out any ties to Amherst. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious what type of investigation uh, or journalistic uh, inquiry could take place by that date. And also to give them the benefit of the doubt, the Mass State Police's reputation in 2012, much better than it is today. Right. So back in at that point in time, journalists may not have had the same reason they have today to scrutinize the statements that that agency makes. Right. I think what we uh, oh go ahead. I was going to say. I mean, it would be a year later, uh, September ninth, two thousand and thirteen, when people from the uh, Mass State Police Lab would testify about what their initial impressions were from August of 2012, literally six weeks before this article came out. And the distinct impression I got was that they were slightly horrified at the practices at Amherst, that they were not following uh, the scientific working group for the analysis of seized drugs, that they had a bunch of practices that um, they they were making their own standards that they immediately had to be like, stop, you can't do this. And it wouldn't be until another couple of weeks after this article came out that they did a form, more formal audit. It was still what they called a friendly audit, but the results were just scathing. Uh, right. So um, it was really, I think, pretty irresponsible for them to, uh, as Chris said, 
put out this kind of statement that this is a lab that's really in the pipeline for accreditation. And, and it's, you know, it, it's irresponsible, I think, to some extent to have uh, journalists that just kind of parrot uh, these these press releases that uh, law enforcement gives, right? Especially with looking back at what we know now and and just seeing this uh, to put your name on this uh, and then to have it blow up so spectacularly is is just a black eye all around. So um, it says state police have no immediate plans to move drug testing to the University of Massachusetts Amherst after a drug tampering scandal shut down a Boston lab and put dozens of chemists on leave and prompted the resignation of public health, the public health commissioner this week. Me, uh, meantime, authorities said none of what's that? You have a little echo, Jamie. Oh, am I? OK, hold on. Let me turn. Uh, it says, meantime, uh, authority said none of the tens of thousands of dr- drug samples a chemist at the State Department of Public Health lab in Boston allegedly mishandled are linked to criminal cases in Hampshire or Franklin counties. No idea how they could possibly know that. After, after careful review of all criminal cases handled by a rogue chemist, <laughs> already calling her a rogue chemist, at the closed Jamaica plain drug testing laboratory there are no past or current cases prosecuted by the northwestern district attorney's office said da david sullivan who described the scandal at the william h hinton state laboratory institute as quote stunning as as the state's probe widens to include the work of other DPH chemists, the, st- the Massachusetts State Police said its forensic services section is reviewing the policies and procedures of the Amherst lab as it standardizes its operations with those of the state police's main drug lab in Sudbury. The state police assumed overnight oversight of the Amherst facility and now closed Jamaica Plain Lab in July as part of the budget reorganization. The Worcester County District Attorney's Office oversees a third of state uh, drug analysis labs in the city. And then the labs were, were placed under state police authority for reasons of efficiency, including streamlining and consolidating the state's testing of drugs in criminal cases, which the state police already does in Sudbury, uh, said David Prokipo, I'm butchering that name, a state police spokesman. While, while the DPH followed the national standards of the scientific working group for the analysis of seized drugs, they absolutely did not. It lacked the resources to fulfill the national accreditation standards that the Massachusetts State Police Lab has achieved. So I think you're laughing there because we already discussed in a previous episode how the OIG found an internal email between Julianne Nassif and Charles Salemi saying something to the effect of, you know, we're actually not following SWIG drug, right? <laughs> and I believe, if I remember correctly, that was from 2009. Right. So, uh, you know, even by this point in time, they're still representing that they uh, are following SWIG drug to the press, um, to the state police, I guess. And, um, you know, they had known for years that it wasn't true. So the standardization process will follow the Amherst lab to achieve accreditation by the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors 
laboratory accreditation board, the oldest and best known crime forensic laboratory accrediting body in the world. Does that include Scandinavia? We don't know, but uh, that is what Pro uh, Procipio uh, told the Gazette. The integrity of the Mass State Police Lab is beyond reproach. Something tells me I doubt that. But anyways, all, all of the state's police's 10 lab facilities, apart from the two state labs that now oversees in Amherst and Jamaica Plain, have such accreditation, he said. The drug labs primary, uh, primarily provide forensic testing for illicit drugs such as heroin and marijuana seized by law enforcement agencies, as well as analyzing prescription over-the-counter drugs to detect tampering. Eight of the 10 state police labs facilities analyze other types of evidence, such as ballistics, DNA, fingerprints, and trace evidence. Uh, Sullivan said the accreditation is important for public trust in the justice system. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Uh, There's no substitute for having a nationally accredited lab with protocols and guarantees that the process has integrity, Sullivan said Thursday. As the whole process gets reviewed in Jamaica Plain, there really should be a review of all the labs to ensure they meet all the safeguards. I agree with that statement. It was crazy. It happened in, if I remember correctly, 2002 and as well in 2003 or 2004. So there was a a body that investigated and said, you need to become accredited. And they just didn't do it. And then there was a governor's drug lab or a governor's task force on uh, forensic science. And part of that uh, looked specifically at the drug labs and said, again, you need to become accredited or there's going to be a disaster, right? And so this is, again, this article is from 2012, 10 years later, and there's been no real effort in either labs to um, meet either of those standards. Right. Um, So as for the Amherst lab, which handles almost all of the drug tests for the Northwestern District Attorney's Office and police departments in Western Massachusetts, Sullivan said the lab has done uh, has done has done so with great professionalism and integrity, in quotes. Um, You know, smoking crack in a lab is actually that counts as integrity. So. And, uh, and cooking crack also counts as integrity. So they, they were spot on with that statement. Uh, criminal probes. Th- thus far, authorities said the drug tampering scandal has been confined to the Jamaica Plain lab. Though in recent years, thousands of drug samples were shipped to Amherst from the lab because of a work backlog. On Tuesday, John Arabach, the state's outgoing public health chief, said it was a single rogue chemist who was, see, this is what I, let let me just pause right here. Like, how is John Arbach not held accountable for saying this kind of stuff? Well, he read the OIG report that hadn't yet been written. Yeah, the the narrative was already there. Like, the the OIG conclusion was predetermined, like, before Dukin was even arrested, it seems. And and I don't remember, uh, I haven't committed the media, the uh, uh, outreach plan to memory. Uh, but I think we've seen some um, sketchy notes about that. But clearly, these are uh, what anyone who's been around the block a few times recognizes as talking points. And these are talking points that they made sure were uh, in the beginning, in the middle, and the end of every news story. That, that you know, single 
bad chemist, but no evidence that this implicates some other broader thing. And it's reminiscent of the Martha Coakley press conference where she immediately knew that there was no systemic misconduct uh, when she was uh, um, informed that there was some misconduct, which is very unusual for prosecutors. They don't usually do that, right? They don't usually tie off something before there's an investigation. So um, I think this is just simply a product of that uh, outreach plan that was formulated in February 2012, where they were going to try to blame everything on Annie Dugan. And then when Sonia Farrakh came around, they said, well, let's just blame it on both of them. And there's nothing else to see. Right. Um, okay. In a written statement announcing his resignation, he said, what happened at the lab is unacceptable and potentially devastating for some within the criminal justice system. Quote, we owe it to ourselves and the public to understand exactly how and why this happened. End of quote, he said. Quality controls and oversight at the state's uh, drug lab have taken on renewed importance after it was revealed that chemist Annie Dukin allegedly mishandled an unknown number of some 60,000 drug samples that could potentially taint thousands of criminal cases and might have led to wrongful prosecutions. Hey, <laughs> reality admitted, finally. Some cases have already been dropped by prosecutors, and on Wednesday, a Superior Court judge in Norfolk County vacated the sentence of a convicted drug dealer after it was learned that Dukin tested the oxycodone pills that had put him in prison. Now, we're at like, you know, paragraph 10 here, and the first time that anyone that this article mentions that innocent people may, be, may have been locked in jail is right there in, in you know, paragraph 10 or 12, you know. After defending the uh, integrity of a lab where that was completely out of control for the first ten paragraphs, and it also just strikes me as odd as the journalist is fine with the assertion we don't know how many of the sixty thousand drug samples could be potentially tainted, and then at the same time, there's there's no thought or there's no investigation as to whether anyone else at the lab may have had some hint that somewhere between zero and 60,000 samples may have been tampered with. I mean, it just, the numbers alone are so striking. It, it just occurs to me is very odd that even the press would look at it this way and, and not push more questions. Right. Like where are these numbers coming from? Go ahead. All right. Dukin resigned in March after nine years with the lab and state police said that they learned of the internal problems with the drug lab, lab evidence around the time they took over the Jamaica Plain facility earlier this summer. The allegations of mishandling uh, drug tests were known to the Department of Public Health earlier, however, much earlier in June of 2011 and, and even earlier back in 2009, they, they knew that Dukin was forging people's initials. So it, it had been going on for a while, as we know. Our investigation into the former DPH chemist who allegedly, mis allegedly mishandled samples is ongoing, as, as is the process of building a, quote, war room type system to connect the samples she handled with defendants. You know, that's, <laughs> I'm sorry, but now that we've looked at all of the OIG materials, all of that crap was on Excel spreadsheets. They, they did not need a war room. Right. 
Well, I mean, it, it took us years to analyze the, the drug lab evidence database. So, hmm. anyways, that's that's just a thought on my my end. Maybe they produced them after, but it, everything seems fairly connected with like who who tested what evidence in what case and what defendant. You know. Well, I mean, one of the things that the whole litigation in Bridgman and CPCS versus AG revealed was that uh, there was no easy way to connect up a drug evidence sample number with a specific conviction in a criminal case. And that's why that's one of the reasons why it took years and years and years of litigation in order to get the SJC to order the DAs to create lists with the convictions that their offices had obtained connected with a sample number. Like a member of the public would think, you know, okay, it's a, you know, a government case. Obviously there's some way to track it from the time the police sees it to the time it gets analyzed, to the time the defendant pleads or goes to trial. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, How is that possible? You know, it's sort of mind-boggling. It is. I, I I don't buy that though. I think that was just a delay tactic. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. No, no, no. More stone. No, I've seen all the databases. It's it's more frightening to me that no one thought that something like this could happen, and that they would need to track an evidence sample all the way through a criminal case. Wow. Right. Well, it's, it's as we know, it's irrelevant according to the government uh, that it's actually drugs. So. I think Luke was going to say something. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's just one of these things where, you know, the volume of, of the, the drug war was producing just overwhelmed the system and they just had to perpetually cut corners. They cut corners on data. They cut corners on quality control, quality assurance. And this just became chickens coming home to roost when uh, this hit and all of a sudden you're, you're left with this sort of shocking realization that just doing basic accounting is going to take years and years and years. And um, it, it, I just think it, it was a place where the, where drug warriors just felt like they, they, the costs of it were, were, were so massive that they couldn't invest in, in things that I think we would all take for granted um, that any competent kind of government would, would be able to perform. Right. And meanwhile, they're forking. I mean, how much does do we spend on all this stuff, right? How much? How where is all that money going? If not to track these cases and to to ensure that you know, you know, like if you're if you're charged with a crime, you know exactly what you're charged with, why you were convicted, and and have all that stuff in a in some kind of database and tracked by the government. And like, and we're spending billions of dollars a year on on law enforcement. I I, I just it. To, to me, there's there's a, a, a number of things that just don't add up. Um, Governor Deval Patrick announced the creation of that war room uh, or central office Thursday. It will be overseen by David Muir, an experienced defense attorney and former prosecutor. Meyer. Uh, Meyer? Sorry. Um, the central office will serve as a clearinghouse for all information so that we can fully understand the universe of cases we're dealing with and see that justice is done, Patrick said Thursday. And so it, go, it goes on and on. I don't have to read the whole article. 
Um, so, but it does go into something interesting about uh, the Amherst lab, and that was the potential closure of the Amherst lab. Uh, it says the Amherst lab, which was slated for closure last year during state budget talks, uh, but spared, em employs three chemists and a supervisor. The unmarked lab is located on the lower levels of the Morrill Science Center complex on the UMass uh, campus and constitutes and continues doing business as usual, according to state police. Even as, even as it faced closure last year, the Amherst lab had taken some 3,000 samples from the Jamaica Plain lab in the fiscal year that ended in June 2011 because the backlog of cases in the Boston lab. The last monthly drug lab report po posted by state police officials on its website is uh, for May 2012, uh, or two months after Dukin resigned. The report states that the Amherst and Jamaica Plain labs combined had a backlog of nearly 13,000 drug samples, with 9,789 samples that had gone unanalyzed for 50 days or more. Now, People are in jail waiting on those samples, correct? Generally, unless they can make bail. Right. Yeah. Usually, if you can't make bail in like a district court case, you're there anywhere from three to six months or a year, something like that. That's my experience. Um, so, and, and there's still, we found during our, the course of our research now that there is still a backlog to this day. <laughs> now... I mean, you have one has to wonder if the backlog is not intentional. Do, do you what do you what are your guys' feelings on that? Can you uh, comment on that? And, and what do you feel about the, this never-ending backlog that no matter how much money they spend, never seems to go away? Well, Jim seemed to think that um, you know they were processing samples more slowly over at Amherst to keep on getting work, but I took a different um, stance on it, especially in light of those emails where once uh, Farrah transferred there, they told her she was working way too quickly to the extent that they even stopped giving her samples. You know, I, I think it more speaks to the fact that uh, Farrah, when she first started there, was doing the same thing that she was doing at Hinton uh, and that, you know, Obviously, they needed many more chemists at both labs in order to get through these samples legitimately. But I think it speaks volumes that even as bad as the Amherst lab was, they told her she couldn't keep on processing samples that way. I don't see any reason. If, I mean, if they were on a shoestring budget and they were trying to show that they were productive, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't have let her go nuts on as many samples as she wanted to in order to increase their numbers and show, you know, how useful they were to the government. Right. I guess my take on that is that I'm not 100% convinced that that was true. That I think that was a email from Farrick to a former Hinton co-worker, and I take that with a grain of salt. I think it's easy to kind of fall in. I think there's a big perception that kind of tracks all through this this whole drug lab crisis with this East-West thing. And there's a lot of folks who have a foot in both places who I think realize when they head West that they can get some kind of cred with the folks on the East by kind of dissing the, the bumpkins out in the West and then how they're 
they're really not like, you know, the cool kids uh, in, the, <laughs> in the area. So I think Farrick uh, was, may have been doing a little bit of that. I mean, from my deep dive on the data, uh, the, the Amherst lab was churning out uh, samples per chemist in, in, throughout this whole era in a way that dwarfed what was happening with, in Hinton, even where Dukin was on the record as, as inflating her numbers through dry labbing. So I'm not convinced that, that there was a, a slowdown in Amherst. I think everything that I've encountered suggests the only way that chemists were evaluated was on output. It was productivity, not, it was quantity over quality. And so I don't see any evidence that, um, that that email has some, something that would substantiate in a way that makes me think it's a 100% accurate representation of uh, what um, life was like for Amherst chemists versus Hinton ones. Right. If, can I just uh, chime in on one thing? So this is something where, uh, you know, you frequently encounter situations where you have aggregate data that tells the story and it seems strange. So you look at case studies and try to understand how those case studies line up to the aggregate story. And what you see in the case studies is that a prosecutor could, uh, someone gets arrested on a Monday, the prosecutor could call Annie Dukin on a Wednesday and she could have that tested by a fr on a Friday. So if that's the case, why do you have a backlog? And the answer is, if any, anyone who's tried to get a COVID test or a vaccine knows the answer, the, this, each member of the Celtics has been tested probably a thousand times. I can't get a test if I have a, a cough because I'm at the back of the line and I stay at the back of the line. So I think what was happening was there were people constantly cutting the front of the line. Annie Dukin needed to test something because we got this big trafficking case. Boom, she tests it and everyone goes to the back of the line. They didn't have a first-in, first-out system at Amherst that I can tell or at uh, uh, Hinton. Um, I know in my client's case, he was tested in a matter of months. That seems pretty reasonable. That doesn't suggest that there's a, you know, a, a backlog measuring in the thousands. So I think that we're missing the story by talking about the backlog in aggregate. I think what happened is people, there was a system where prosecutors called in favors or some cases were deemed more important and other cases weren't. And they banked on the fact that a lot of people took pleas and you didn't even need to test the sample, but they didn't have a good system for tracking that. So I think the answer is a, a, a mess because of, of what systems were in place. And we'll never know, but that's my theory, that people were cutting in the front of the line. Okay, so, uh, so going back to when uh, Amherst was going to be closed in like the late summer, early fall of uh, 2011, uh, Joe Durant uh, from a WAMC public radio interview on 81911. Uh, and Joe Durant was uh, the president of the Massachusetts Organization of State Engineers and Scientists, also known as Moses. Yes, very topical for this time of year. Um, and the so he, here he goes. Uh, this was an interview that he did with public radio, Joe Durant, president of Moses, the union that represents lab employees said the Jamaica plane lab already has a three month backlog and the addition of over 6,000 cases handled annually by Amherst will only stretch that delay. 
quote, police officers, district attorneys, and the courts rely on these chemists to do analysis and also to testify in court so they can prosecute the drug dealers in the western part of the state, end of quote. Uh, Here's another quote. There will definitely be a lag time in getting those cases to trial, and I'm afraid it will allow drug dealers to be on the streets a lot longer, end of quote. Neutral detached scientists. <laughs> also, I want to point out the irony. So this is August 19th, 2011. We know Ferrick started treatment at the beginning of 2009, if I remember correctly. So by this time, a, a chemist at that lab has probably committed more drug offenses than anyone else in that part of the state. Certainly anyone else that... Um, you know, John Joe Dorrant is worried about as being a drug dealer and being on the street. So, yeah, um, the irony needs to be. I pointed that, out. that's a great point. Well, and also the the you know the idea that, and I think that soundbite reveals that you know the the war on drugs that um, Luke that you mentioned not only did it poison the public's minds but it also poisoned the media. And the media had no, they abdicated any role. I mean, I can think of maybe one or two pieces of journalistic discovery that took place in this case, but there was no investigation, no discoveries other than just parroting government press releases or stating the obvious uh, uh, thanks to the work of the lawyers like, uh, like the, uh, you two. Um, so I think that, that saying drug dealers are walking the street longer, that's not true. They're actually being held over longer, probably, because they can't make bail. Um, and, and the Globe furthered this by suggesting that, that a scary-looking rogues gallery was going to be unleashed. And they even measured this like secondary crime wave that was going to take place. Um, so I think that the fact that the public's mind has been poisoned so much is, is, is the root cause of, of why this happened, because people assume no one would care. And you know what? It was almost that almost the case that no one would care. Luckily enough, people cared um, that there were some hooks uh, that pulled this thing apart. But. So, do you guys know Stanley Rosenberg? Not personally, but you know of him. You do. He's a former state senator, and he's the former Senate president of uh, the Massachusetts uh, State Senate. And he was interviewed um, in in 2011, the same day, August 19th of 2011, for the State House News. And it said, uh, Senator Stanley Rosenberg, Democrat from Amherst, said this is the third attempt in the past 25 years to close the Amherst lab, including 1998 and again in 2009. Both times, closure plans were not executed. The essence of the problem is that samples to be tested and materials will need to be transported across the state. That's a very, very long way. You're, you're looking at a minimum of half a day's work unless they develop some type of transportation system that's reliable, Rosenberg said. <laughs> How hard could that be? <laughs> the highest ranking Senate Democrat said he, was scheduled, he scheduled a meeting for next Wednesday with Public Health Commissioner John Arbach to discuss the situation. Does, does this sound like Stanley Rosenberg was heavily responsible for keeping Sonia Farrakh uh, in her lab for as long as possible? Well, I mean, again, I, I think there's a regional thing going on here where 
what they, the Department of Public Health for the third time in 25 years, as he said, was attempting to shut down a facility in Western Massachusetts that would require municipalities to pay a police officer from Pittsfield six, six hours to drive back and forth to drop a sample off in Boston. And they didn't want to do that. And so, um, you know, I think big picture stuff, yes, why are we fighting a drug war? Why do we need all these labs? Why are all of that? But if you're going to do all that, the the I think the thing that he's responding to is the fact that out in Western Massachusetts, we do things like pay our state taxes so we can build big digs for, for Boston. And there's a perpetual, um, from Shays Rebellion on, uh, stick it to the, the, the folks out here in the hinterlands. And so I think that's what's going on there. And that lab, every time they went to close it, the, the response would be, you don't need to close it, you just need to trim its budget. So at the end of the day, what they ended up doing was creating a situation where um, it was a just a cesspool of forensic bad practices. But um, a lot of it ended up being, on the one hand, you're starving it for resources. On the other hand, you don't really care about it. So the old Chinese proverb, the mountain high and the emperor is far away. People in Amherst who work there didn't have to worry about folks from Boston showing up and doing audits and, and seeing what's happening here in, in a way that... Um, you know, was even more uh, derelict than what was happening at the uh, the Hinton facility. Right. And But if you're going to go to bat, and I understand the regional thing, I understand all of that. But you, if they're considering closing it, you got to do your due diligence and check to see if this asset is actually pulling its weight and worth the money being spent. And you take your time and you look at that, what's going on in that lab really closely. And I that was clearly not done. Well, I think we got into the budget earlier and it was something like $300,000 a year for yeah. four people working there. And like that raises the question of how is it possible that they could, you know, afford any lab supplies, but. <laughs> like they, I don't know where they were getting their money. And if they were worried about 300 grand, couldn't they have just fired one cop at Massport? <laughs> well, how about this? If if you're looking at an organization and worried about travel time across the state carrying drugs, how come nobody thought that there was something wrong with the supervisor dr carrying uh, uh, homegrown uh, uh, heroin uh, standards uh, from Amherst to Boston? I mean, it's the same drive, if, if, unless somebody has figured out a shortcut that I'm unaware of. Um, it, it, why was that not an issue? So somehow they're very selective about what they worry about. Uh, and they only tell us about the stuff we're allowed to know. Um, I would have been very interested in 2011 to hear that we have to consider the offsetting considerations of closing a lab and the longer drives east uh, with samples compared to the fact that the lab in the east might now be cut off from its source of uh, uh, secondary standards. So that would have been an interesting conversation to have had if, if there had been full disclosure. So well, I, oh, the last thing I want to so in all all fairness, so you know the senator when he made that comment clearly didn't know about all sorts of things that were going on. One of the things that he and the, the rest of the legislature should have been aware of was the governor's task force report 
that came out prior to this saying that they need to become accredited. It's going to cost like something like $30,000. If they don't do it, there's going to be a disaster. Right. And so, uh, they don't get off the hook, um, for continuing to cut the budget when they know they've been warned multiple times that they need to do this or else the evidence is not going to eventually be admissible in court, right? They, they can't know that it's going to cost $30,000 a year to get accreditation, not give it to them, and then continue to cut the budget, right? So, I mean, there's blame to go all around, even though it's clear, you know, none of the, none of the state reps or senators knew exactly what was going on, but, you know, their, their hands aren't clean either. No, but they have they have Chris. They have oversight duties. Am I am I uh, correct about that? The Senate has, uh, I believe, the drug lab is is part of someone's oversight portfolio, and I'm you know presuming that that not a lot of vigorous activity took place there. But I mean, your point is fair. He didn't know, most likely, but I would say that you know you don't know a hundred percent of the things that you don't ask about. Yeah, but you're on notice if there's a governor's report on the issue. Right. And you're, and you're actively advocating for it. That's the difference. Like he's, he's pushing. And so in 2009, when they were going to close it, he, there was another article um, and he was interviewed again in, in 20, in 2009. And he said, quote, it's definitely going to put a crimp in the public safety complex for Western mass. If they cl- do close it, Rosenberg said, so we will be in touch with the administration to see what is possible here. Right. Once again, they equate drugs with public safety. Right. Kind of an interesting thing. Um, all they're worried about is like scaring people into thinking that they need that lab rather than looking into the lab to see if they actually need it and what's going on there. What I mean, the, the, the discourse should be, does the public want to invest X number of dollars in these prosecutions because this is what it's going to yield? Right. Not these people are scary. We need to uh, focus on this a little bit, but we don't need to give these labs enough of a budget in order for them to do their job again, because these people are criminals. Right. So, Luke, let me ask you about Amherst. Um, So far, have have the cases that have been dismissed, have they only been Sonia Farrakh cases? No. Amherst, every um, case where there's a sample tied to a drug certificate with her name on, um, the DAs, by the time uh, the public counsel services versus attorney general's office was litigated, they had voluntarily dismissed every one of those. Um, It was somewhere probably in the neighborhood of 8,500. Chris will correct me if I'm wrong. The SJC in October of 2018 went a step further and said because she was tampering with standards um, and with other chemists' uh, samples, any sample that went to that lab between 2009 and 2013 that resulted in conviction, those are going to be wiped off the books too. And anybody who had a meth case from the time that Farrick showed up in August of 2004 period, those are were going to be... Um, uh, any meth case at all, I think, from Amherst, because mm-hmm. in that uh, into the standard for for so many years. So I think it ended up being somewhere in the neighborhood of 16,000, 16,500 total uh, cases out of Amherst that uh, ended up being 
uh, dismissed with prejudice. Okay. You know, the methodology there about the meth cases was fairly curious to me because she clearly admitted to dipping into methamphetamine, amphetamine, dextroamphetamine, ketamine, LSD, among other things, and they didn't see fit to just dump all those cases. But, you know, I guess <laughs> it was progressive for them to at least thrown out all the cases that they did. Right. And that's way more than I actually thought. I didn't know that they had gone that far. Um, but at the same time, so where does the 2009 date come at? Why did they select 2009? Do you know? Uh, that was the date that I think her grand jury testimony indicated that she had kind of moved over to other lab standards. She ran out of meth uh, in, in 2008. And so at that point, she just went through the laundry list of standards that Chris just ticked off and just decided, all right, we're ironically, uh, you know, the, on some level, you almost have to chuckle because um, they threw out all these cases on the theory that Farrick was tampering with all these standards. At Amherst, they didn't use the standards for anything. It must have been all of these standards, these bottles, they were like law books in my library. They kind of looked, made it look like a thing where, but nobody would use them. You look at all their, if it wasn't a cocaine or heroin sample, they were just matching it with the computer match quality. They wouldn't do any contemporaneous, here's our LSD, here's what we think is LSD, let's, let's see what the retention time is, let's compare the spectra. None of that. Uh, and so it's, it's for those of us paying attention, that decision from the court is, is actually kind of funny. It is. <laughs> and ironic. Because like, like you said, they, were, they weren't even using those. So why even, who cares about the standards? But, but anyway, so she was manipulating the computer data for the inventory, correct? Of, of drugs? Yeah, when, when it's... When it, to cover her tracks, she would, um, she had access to that and she would, um, that was part of her, her MO. So it says, uh, it says here in her testimony, Farrakh admitted to manipulating the computer inventory used to track drugs in the Amherst lab. She testified that at certain points she would check the computer evidence inventory to learn which samples were in the safe and which ones might be assigned to her in the future. Her manipulation of the inventory tended to focus on the samples uh, to which she expected she would be assigned. On some occasions, when the opportunity arose, she would record the original gross weight as she received it from the evidence officer and take an amount from that sample for her personal use, but record the weight in her own lab notebook as the original weight. On other occasions, she would, in she would indicate in her lab notebook that the weight of the sample when she received it for testing was less than the weight recorded in the computer inventory. This enabled her to conceal her theft from the sample as a mere discrepancy and or acceptable loss. In addition, she sometimes accessed the computer system and simply changed the gross weights on the drug receipts as had been recorded by the evidence officer. Then if the sample was assigned to another chemist, the weight listed in the inventory would be the same as, as the sample's actual weight so that the chemist analyzing the drugs would, know, uh, would not know the difference. 
If the situation presented itself, she would always go back to the evidence computer and change the weight to the original weight from the submission so no one would know that uh, there had been tampering. Farak indicated that she would do her best to manipulate the order of the samples to make sure that she would be assigned the samples that she wanted. However, there were occasions when the expected samples did not actually get assigned to her and she would take the precautions she described in her testimony. So, like, do they know how long she had been doing this? And well, like a forensic examination of the computer system should have been able to clarify that fairly quickly, right? Like, I would assume that <clears throat> the state police with all its resources could have been able to hire someone to look at their system and say, this person logged in at this point in time, uh, you know, Windows has a record of that and the changes that were made to this program, but that never happened. Right. So in, in my world, um, in the biotech world, they have something that's called 21 CFR Part 11 for computer systems. That's a federal co code of regulations that um, handles uh, computer uses in laboratories. And, they ha and in order to have a compliance system, you need to see who made what entries in the system every single time an entry was being made. So every time you, you check something out or you change a weight or you do whatever, your name is associated with that. And if, if that had happened, they would know exactly how many cases were affected and what exactly she was doing. But as it is here, like you don't know how long she was doing this or how, how far this goes back. She was clearly going after other people's samples as well as her own. So my overall point is how can you trust a single sample in that lab? I have a distinct recollection of in the hearings we did in the fall of 2013, um, Bob Hennessy, he's a great lawyer uh, on Western Mass, an, uh, an appellate lawyer, um, was questioning, I think it was Sharon Salem, about the, the system that they had where they would, uh, an officer would come in, he'd submit the sample, they would do a, a gross weight. Um, and then it would get assigned, and then it would come back to her, um, and the count, and then she would do another kind of gross weight to see, you know, if there'd been any changes. And she just and say, so what would you do when Bob's asking questions? What would you do if there was um, a discrepancy? And she said, oh, we would um, change the original weight to match what it was after the testing process. <laughs> so we're just sitting there going like, well. Doesn't that mean we'll never figure out? And it was just like she just said it and what? done. Uh, so yeah, there's just there's no possible way. It was all just a setup to rubber stamp and, and get the next sample on the conveyor belt. It was you know the uh, the factory kind of uh, assembly line uh, forensics as opposed to a science based endeavor. I love Lucy and the chocolates, literally, with Sonia, right? Um, so um, so I want to go into her, Sonia's, like, around the time she was arrested. So uh, Frock's taking of standards and samples for her personal use continued into 2012. In the wake of, of the misconduct of a DPH chemist, Dukin, at the Hinton Laboratory, the Mass State Police assumed control of the Amherst Lab on July 1st, 2012. 
Then Governor Deval Patrick ordered the Hinton lab to be closed on August 30th of 2012. And during this time, Farrakh was using crack cocaine heavily, multiple times per day while at the lab and at home. In October of 2012, the Mass State Police inspected the Amherst lab in order to assess the work of the lab and move the lab towards being fully accredited. Members of the Mass State Police interviewed Farrakh and other chemists during this visit. During the recent um, Attorney General's investigation, Farrakh testified that she smoked crack on the morning of the Mass State Police inspection and then also at lunchtime prior to her 1 p.m. interview. She just had to, you know, get in the right mind space for that interview, according to Farrakh. During, during the course of the 15 to 20 minute interview, there was no suspicions ever raised about her drug use. Farrakh had another close interaction with the Mass State Police on January 18th of 2013. Farrakh was scheduled to testify in a criminal trial in a criminal trial at the Hampton County Courthouse. Uh, she indicated that she had been that she had a pretty fair amount of crack in her car, taking advantage of the opportunity during lunch break. She went out to her car, ate lunch, and got pretty high, quote. Uh, however, when Mass State Police members spoke to her in the Hampton County Courthouse about the trial for which she was scheduled to testify, the police never suspected her of being under the influence, nor made any comment about her appearance or demeanor. Hear the epic conclusion on the next episode. Thank you for listening to The Rig Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.